Hello, my name is Geoffrey Wyatt. I'm the manager of Sydney Observatory, and I'm going to be talking to you about viewing the sky in December 2008. Of course, to get the best view of the night sky, you'll need a printable map, which you can download from sydneyobservatory.com. You can also use the maps that are provided in the Australian Sky Guide, prepared by Dr. Nick Lom, available from Powerhouse Publishing, Powerhouse Bookshop, or online at www.sydneyobservatory.com. Once you have your map in this podcast, you need to find yourself a, a nice dark location with a good, clear view of the night sky. It may seem silly to say, but sitting under a bright light is not the best place to look at the stars. So find a hill with a clear view of the, of the horizons, a nice dark location. Make sure you observe the sunset to get a rough idea of roughly where west is, if you're facing west, then directly behind is, of course, east, and in between to your right will be north, and to your left will be south. We tend to take our cardinal directions for granted, but we really do need to orient the maps correctly to be able to interpret the, the dots. And after all, stars are nothing more than pin, pinpoints of light against the night sky, and we need to use our imagination and join the dots to make up meaningful pictures. And this is something that people have been doing for thousands of years, whether they do it for navigational purposes, to find their way from one town to another for trade, whether they use it to work out the times of the year, such as the Egyptians did with the star Sirius, or whether they use it to tell stories to their children, to make up pictures as they go. You need to work out your directions to help you find your way around the night sky. After all, there are about 2,000 stars visible if you're in a dark location, and no one, nobody can remember the position of 2,000 points of light. But half a dozen interesting drawings with pictures, sure, makes life much easier. For the month of December, what I want you to do is to wait until sunset, wait until it's lovely and dark, and look towards the western sky. We've lost now the constellation of Scorpius, which is one of the easier of the zodiac constellations to look for. And the first one we'll see as we look west will be that of Capricornus, the sea goat. Now Capricornus looks like a, a triangle with a slightly bent hypotenuse. For those of you that are science fiction buffs like myself, perhaps that bent hypotenuse makes it look a little bit like the Star Trek logo on the characters' uniforms in the various TV programs. But for most of us, it's a triangle. But the thing is, that triangle has a fascinating story that goes with it. It is, of course, the god Capricornus, half goat, half fish. How do you get a half goat, half fish animal? Well, according to one of the more popular legends, which we know goes back to at least the times of Babylon, we have Capricorn, the goat who played the pan pipes. And he was on a, well, I suppose you could call it a picnic with Jupiter and a lot of other gods when the ground cracked open and from the depths of hell the demon Typhon arose. He started to attack Jupiter. Pan did the only obvious thing he could do. He panicked and started to run away and thought he'd change into a fish and swim to safety. He got halfway through the change and realised, well, Jupiter is the boss, perhaps I should go back and help. He returned to the fight, played a dreadful note on his pan pipes which distracted Typhon and Jupiter was able to overpower and win the battle. As a reward, Jupiter placed him as he was into the night sky, half goat, half fish. Might seem like a strange story, but it is, is any more strange than perhaps 
Superman flying through the night sky in his cape and clothes with big S on his shirt. We can't judge stories from thousands of years ago by our ideas of what the world is like today. So this triangle represents Capricorn, which is, of course, one of the zodiac constellations. You've heard me talk about constellations before. They're simply groups of stars in the sky. They have, in most cases, nothing to do with each other. It's just an optical effect that they appear to be side by side. If we look at the 2,000 or so stars in the sky that we can see, we join the dots and we've now officially made up 88 pictures or constellations in the sky. Some of these constellations are more famous than others. Everybody's heard of the Southern Cross. Many people have heard of Andromeda. But who has heard of Calum, Horologium, Pictor, Recticulum? Not many of us, but we've all heard of Capricornus, Aquarius, Pisces, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, the so-called birthday star signs. These are the constellations through which the sun, the moon and the planets pass. So if you're tracking down the planet, well, there's no point in looking in Apis. They don't appear there. If you're looking for a planet, stick to the famous birthday star signs. And that's their only significance. They have no scientific value other than as an indicator of where to look for the sun, the moon, the planets. So our first of the star signs visible this month, Capricornus. Wrapped around and slightly above Capricornus is a very difficult water constellation to see, and that is Aquarius. Fairly difficult to see, I'm afraid, but look for a line of stars that meanders its way across the sky, just slightly, ever so slightly, south of uh, Capricorn, and you'll see a reasonably bright star there called Fomalo. Fomalo is one of the brightest stars in this part of the sky at this time of year. Uh, Fomalo means the, the solitary one, because there's no other bright stars nearby. It's the brightest star in the constellation of Pisces Astrinus, the southern fish, not to be confused with Pisces, of course. Now, Pisces Astrinus, the southern fish, is in dire straits because another famous constellation of the south, Grus the crane, is trying to eat it. Now, to me, Grus, it does look like a long, graceful-necked bird in flight with its wings out and its legs dragging behind. Certainly I've taken a bit of liberty there with my imagination and joining the dots. But look for the bright star Fomalo over towards the southwest above Capricornus. Then look towards the south from there for a group of stars. It makes up a, I suppose you could say, a, a large cross with uh, a couple of trailing legs going behind the shorter end. And that's Grus the Crane. Intriguingly, to our mythology that we now use for the stars, Grus is a crane about to try and eat pieces as strong as a southern fish. But for many cultures throughout the South Pacific, it's a similar story. It represents a fishing pole uh, with a line dangling down to catch the fish of Pisces Astrinus. It's really quite intriguing that different cultures end up with the same general idea. And this happens quite a bit, in particular with Taurus. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, we're in the... In the southwest, we've just had a look at Capricornus, we've had a look at Grus. If we head back down further towards the, the southwest, you might expect to be able to see the Southern Cross. But you can't. The Southern Cross is going to be too low early in the night for us to see at this time of year. Even though it doesn't go below the horizon for the major cities on 33 degrees south, so that's Sydney, Adelaide and Perth, 
it does get down low enough to disappear into the murk and the horizon will glow behind buildings, even tall trees will block the view. And as a result, the Southern Cross is not visible. This is really odd. Many Australians don't realise it's not visible clearly throughout the year. And as a result, we tend to look up and join the, the dots for any group of four stars that make up false crosses, of which there are many. I think one of the, the best ones is Ara of the Altar, near the tail of Scorpius. But that's getting a bit low at this time of year as well. Above the real Southern Cross, however, there are a couple of real corkers that trick people. There's a very long and thin, narrow cross, which we call the Diamond Cross, but nearby, as part of the constellations of Carina and Vela the Sails, there's actually a much bigger and easier to see false cross, or asterism, which we call the False Cross. These stars actually all made up part of the much larger constellation of Argo the Ship. Now, Argo the Ship was one of the biggest constellations in the sky, but in 1930, the International Astronomical Union broke it up into four smaller constellations, Vela the Sails, Carina the Keel, Purpose the Deck, and Pixis the Compass. Now, Argo is actually, although it doesn't exist anymore, it's still around in mythology because it relates to one of the greatest stories ever told according to sky legend, and that is the story of Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. Now, the Golden Fleece was produced by Ares the Ram, which is visible slightly to the north, but we'll come back to that a little later. If we leave Vela and go to Pupus, and there's no particular bright stars there other than, say, the, the False Cross, but head from the False Cross towards the east, and you'll see a, a fairly bright object, fairly bright star. In fact, it is the brightest star in the night sky. Sirius the Dog Star has finally returned to our skies, and it's fairly easy to see a stick-like figure of an upside-down dog. Now, remember that most of the constellations that we have have been named from the Northern Hemisphere. So for us in the Southern Hemisphere, sadly, they're going to be upside-down. So, looking east, look for a very bright, twinkling star. It'll still be quite low down, and that is Sirius. From Sirius, we can draw, if you've got your map there with you, you should be able to see a stick-like figure. He's really quite easy to see, unfortunately, except for his neck and his head. But if you're away from bright lights, you should be able to see it. Now, Sirius is, of course, one of the hunting dogs for one of the most famous characters in the sky, and that is Orion the Mighty Hunter. Now, Orion is an intriguing constellation because up until fairly recently, most Australians referred to Orion as the Sourceman. Not so much these days. We tend to know it by its correct name, and we often talk about Orion's belt. But looking east, see if you can see three stars in a lovely straight line, reasonably close together. I'll give you an idea of reasonably close together. If you hold out your pinky at arm's length, probably about the width of your pinky. So it's a fairly small part of the sky. Three stars in a straight line that make up the base of the saucepan. On one side, you've got another star that goes up to form a side. On the other edge, if you like, you've got another side, and then three smaller clustered stars that make up the handle. Now, only those of us in the South, in particular New Zealanders, Australians and South Africans, tend to call it the, the saucepan. Most people around the world know it as the constellation of Orion, the mighty hunter, who once bragged that he could kill any animal on the planet. Well, perhaps he bragged a little too soon, because one of the gods sent a giant scorpion to dispose of him, and... 
as a result of the battle and sadly his death, uh, his lover Artemis placed him in the sky as far away from the scorpion as possibly could be seen. So as Orion's coming up in the east, Scorpius has just disappeared into the western sky. Look towards Orion and you should be able to see that one of the stars has a slightly reddish colour to it. Now when astronomers say red, unfortunately we don't mean traffic light red. It's pretty much any colour uh, that's not white or bluish, and we tend to call that red. What you're looking at there is a massive star. It's one of the biggest stars we've ever seen. Not in terms of its mass, but in terms of its volume. The star Betelgeuse, and yes, that is its name, Betelgeuse is about 500 times the diameter of the Sun, and one of the biggest stars we've seen. Mass, however, not that much bigger. It's a bit tricky to talk about, but if you look at the star Betelgeuse, that slightly orange, yellowish, reddish looking object, it is a star that's at the end of its life. Stars undergo nuclear reactions for most of their life. They sit there happily and do this for millions or billions of years, depending on their size. But at the end of their life, they swell up and become enormously big. Betelgeuse is doing that now. It was a star that was perhaps only ten times more massive than the Sun, but at the end of its life it's swollen to become roughly 500 times the diameter of the Sun. That's a seriously big star. Remember the Sun is about 114 times the diameter of the Earth and we think that's big, but a star that's 500 times bigger than the Sun? Mind you, there are other stars out there which are thousands of times bigger. But here's the really intriguing thing. When a massive star becomes very big and bloated, their density is incredibly low. In fact, if you consider their overall volume and how much mass is there, their density is about as good, if not better, than the best vacuums that we can manufacture here on the planet. These massive stars and their outer layers are as close to being nothing as you can actually call something. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Anyway, Betelgeuse is a dying star. Now, its name, it's a derivation of an Arabic name that made its way through the, the Dark Ages, when much of our wonderful history from Europe was lost during the Dark Ages. It was Arabic culture that saw the beauty and the wisdom of mathematics, science and the arts. And through the Renaissance, there's been a rediscovery, of course, and we now often use Arabic star names. The pronunciation of Betelgeuse was something along the lines of Ibtilyaza, as far as we know. But the pronunciation of that has been so bad over the last several hundred years, it's now devolved, if you like, to the name Betelgeuse. Intriguing name, a beautiful star. A little bit lower towards the east than Orion the Hunter, you'll start to see the constellation of Gemini the Twins, another group of characters that assisted Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. But they're not actually up high enough for us to talk about in detail yet, so we'll wait for those for the next month. From Orion and Betelgeuse, swing around ever so slightly to the north and there's another slightly yellowish orange reddish star. Once again, a dying star. This star is Aldebaran, in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. Pretty much the only part of Taurus which is easy to see is a V shape. Now the V represents the head of the bull, 
One of the eyes is, of course, represented by the red star Aldebaran, and then you extend the V-shape out to two very long horns. If you go the other direction, away from the horns, slightly around towards the north again, you'll be able to see the group of stars M45, or the Pleiades. The Pleiades is perhaps the most famous open cluster. It's a group of young stars, perhaps no more than 100 million years old. There may be a few hundred of them all together in the, in the, the stellar nursery, if you like. But typically we can see six or eight or sometimes even nine stars. Strangely, however, they're referred to as the Seven Sisters. Seven Sisters, according to Aboriginal mythology from the oldest star watchers on the planet, to seven sisters from European cultures and even in Asia. Why is it around the world these stars are known as seven sisters? Why not seven fish swimming for cultures that are reliant on fish? Or why not seven hills of Rome since they seem to be so famous? Or seven kangaroos are hopping? We really don't know. But it is a beautiful object to look at through a pair of binoculars. Problem is, holding binoculars can be quite tricky. You need to mount them on a tripod or wedge them into a tree branch, fork or against the side of the building. But just holding them there won't work. You need to make them sturdy. So look at this part of the sky and look for that beautiful group of stars, M45 or the Pleiades. Oh, by the way, most of you know their Japanese name. Their Japanese name, Subaru. And those of you that drive a Subaru, if you ever wondered what that group of stars is on the bonnet of your car, it represents this group of stars. Swinging around from the north towards the northwest, we see the great square of Pegasus starting to dip below or dip towards the horizon. Pegasus is one of the more famous constellations in the northern hemisphere and it borders the great constellation of Andromeda. Not that Andromeda is all that famous, but certainly it has the most distant object visible to the naked eye. Forget trying to do this on a moonlit night or if it's partly cloudy, or if you're near bright lights. But look for the great square of Pegasus. And then from the corner, I suppose you'd have to say if you're looking north, on the lower right corner of the great square of Pegasus, just drop down back towards the north and scan that part of the sky with a pair of binoculars. You may just be able to see the great galaxy in Andromeda. Two million light years away, this is the most distant object visible to the naked eye. And many people will actually tell you it's our closest galactic neighbour, and that's simply not true. There are several which are closer, because our Milky Way galaxy is actually devouring a couple of nearby smaller ones. But further around in the south, towards the constellation of Dorado, near the second brightest star in the night sky, Canopus, we actually have the large and the small Magellanic clouds. Now, this is a good time to see the Magellanic Clouds, so perhaps we need to swing back towards the, the southeast. Once again, if you're in a large city or even a town or if the moon is up, you won't be able to see these. Pick out the second brightest star in the night sky, Canopus, then head back down towards the horizon a little bit, and you should be able to pick out two bits of... Well, they look like two bits of the Milky Way that have broken off and drifted away. They are, in fact entirely separate galaxies. Galaxies which were first seen by Europeans and noted several hundred years ago and named in honour of the first man to almost sail around the world, Ferdinand Magellan. Now the Large Magellanic Cloud, a totally separate galaxy to us, 
is about 160,000 light years away. Remember that a light year is simply the distance that light travels in one year. The smaller and not so easily seen galaxy, the small Magellanic Cloud, is approximately 200,000 light years away and also fairly difficult to see. For the month of December 2008, there's actually a spectacular view in the western sky shortly after sunset on the 1st of December. You'll see a young crescent moon and very close to it you'll be able to see two very bright objects. They are of course Planetea. Planetea simply means wandering stars, although these days we call them planets. They are the goddess of love herself, Venus, and king of the gods, Jupiter. This is one of the best sights I think you can see for this year. These two very bright planets, very close to the moon, at about 9pm on the 1st of December. Throughout the rest of the month, you'll be able to see Venus moving ever so slightly higher up through the constellation of Capricornus. But there are no other planets visible at this time of year. Now, highlights for the moon. The first quarter moon, when you can actually see half of the moon, and I think that sounds rather confusing, but there are four parts, if you like, four quarters to the, the monthly lunar cycle. When you can see no moon, which we call new moon. When you can see half of it, which we call first quarter. Uh, full moon, of course, which is halfway through the cycle, and then the opposite half, when we call that last quarter. Now for the month of December, the first quarter is on Saturday the 6th, and this is about the best time to view the, the moon. Many people still think it's the best time when it's around full, and that's not the case. Three days either side of full moon, you might as well stare at a light bulb and try and read Osram written on the bottom. It's about first quarter, just before, just after, leading up towards the full moon. And that's when you get the magnificent shadows, the contrast that highlights the details in the craters, the mountain ranges, and even through a small optical device you should be able to see some valleys. Uh, of course, you won't ever be able to see the footprints or any spacecraft left behind by NASA. Not because they didn't go, because we don't believe that, uh, simply because it's too small. It doesn't matter how good the optics are, we can never expect to see debris left behind on the surface of the moon. But who cares? There's too many other beautiful things to look at. Tycho, uh, Copernicus, the Alpine Mountains. There really are some spectacular sights. And the best time, once again, either side of the first quarter on the 6th and either side of the last quarter on the 19th, although you'd have to be up very, very late indeed to see that. So full moon will be on the 13th of December, last quarter on the Friday the 19th, and new moon on the 27th. Of course, the other thing for us to remember is that December is the month of the summer solstice. On the 21st of December at 11.04pm, the sun will reach its most southerly point in the sky, and then will begin its journey back towards the north. The solstice and the equinoxes. They're the things that people are interested in looking at the position of the sun in the sky. The equinoxes occur in March and September when the sun crosses the equator and the solstice represent when the sun is at its most northerly point or its most southerly point. And for us it reaches its most southerly point on the 21st at 11.04pm. Now, of course, with 2009 being the International Year of Astronomy, I think it's absolutely essential that everyone has their own copy of the 2009 Australian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom. 
It is perhaps the best general guide uh, for Australia written. It gives you all the information about the phases of the moon, the positions of the planets, the rise and set time of the planets, and the sunrise and sunset, along with monthly star charts and interesting phenomena. So, for the complete guide for 2009, make sure you get your Australian Sky Guide, and you can get this via the Powerhouse Shop, or of course Powerhouse Publishing, at www.sydneyobservatory.com. It also has the bonus month of December 2008, so in fact you get 13 months. This has been Geoffrey Wyatt, Manager of Sydney Observatory, talking to you about what's visible in the night sky for December 2008. If you'd like to get some more information about Sydney Observatory or to download these maps, please visit our website at www.sydneyobservatory.com. And of course, I strongly recommend that you get your own copy of the Australian Sky Guide by Powerhouse Publishing, written by Dr Nick Long.